If you have your Bibles with you today, would you take them and turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. We started our new series going through the book of Philippians this fall. We just began it last week. And so if you weren't here last week, you haven't missed much. We didn't even get through the end of verse 1 as we were just uh, meditating last week on that phrase that Paul uses to introduce himself and Timothy, what it means to be a servant of Christ. And so today we're going to get through verses 2 through 6, actually picking up the end of verse 1 as well. This is still the introduction to Philippians. This is still Paul introducing himself, saying who the letter is to, giving them his typical epistolary blessings that he begins with, as well as part of his introductory prayer of thanksgiving for the church. It's introduction, and yet it's very significant. We, we tend to err if we would go over the introductions to Paul's letters too quickly. What he does is oftentimes in the prayer that he prays at the beginning of the letter, he's subtly introducing us to the themes about which he's going to write. He's praying over them. He's thanking the Lord for them. And yet, as one scholar said, in those prayers of thanksgiving is the seed that will come to a full flower throughout the rest of the letter. And so it's important to, to study these prayers and these introductions carefully, to note the, the uniqueness of them and how Paul speaks in them. So let me ask you, if you're able, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's Word today? This is uh, Philippians chapter 1. I'll start at the beginning of verse 1, even though I left out the first phrase in the bulletin, but this is where it begins. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. The grass fades, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's pray and ask him to bless our reading of it. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as we turn our attention to study this passage that you have given us for our benefit, we ask that your spirit will open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see it and in seeing understand it, and understanding treasure the words you have given to us, treasuring them in our hearts and practicing them in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The short little passage that we've read of introduction, it, it stands out to me as being important, as being unique, as being uh, special, in part because the contrast that I see in this passage between Paul's attitude towards the church and the attitude that we so commonly see in the world around us, and not only in the world around us, but even in ourselves. It's, it's the contrast that I see that uh, what we often see in our world, even among believers, even among ourselves, is we see oftentimes negative attitudes towards the church. We, we experience this oftentimes. We uh, see grumblings. We, we see those, of course, among unbelievers, but it's surprising to see how often it infects us as well. We often will suffer from something of a consumer mentality in church where we think only of what it does for us 
what have you done for me lately, rather than seeing church as a, a body of people to which we belong, with all of the ups and downs that come along with belonging to a people. The church, likewise, can suffer from a, a producer mindset. That the, the whole desire is to be able to improve the show week after week, to be able to attract more consumers. Or perhaps we don't suffer from that, but perhaps we suffer from skepticism, maybe even cynicism. When we read of the religious surveys that are always seeming to come out every other week, we read that, that the next generation that's coming is more cynical. They don't want to belong to organized religion. Perhaps they love Jesus and they like spirituality, but they don't like the church. We become cynical about what an actual lived-out body of believers gathering together can do. Or perhaps we even suffer from just plain boredom. Just plain boredom. A few years ago, a book came out called Why We Love the Church, which was a book I very much enjoyed reading for my own benefit, and yet we, we hear in the title, he was responding to somebody. He was responding to others who simply don't love the church, who claim to be believers, who love Jesus, who love the Word of God, and yet what they don't love is actual churches. And in fact, wh where this becomes even more troublesome is, is we find that there are people who, who have theological knowledge. It's not that they're young believers, it's not that they're immature, but they have some theological knowledge. They, they love the church, capital C, the worldwide body of Christ. They love it in theory. But where we really struggle is to love the church in practice. It's easy to love it in theory. It's easy to talk and to read the scriptures about the body of Christ and to sing. What a great, great, wonderful idea that is. And yet in practice, to live out that kind of love for the church is, is much more difficult, isn't it? Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the actual Christian community become destroyers of that Christian community be their intentions ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. And if we love the dream, the idea, the theoretical picture of the body of Christ more than we love any particular actual body of Christ, that however good our intentions may be, we actually undermine that reality. And I think most of us would have to admit that, that we've found some of these attitudes in ourselves from time to time, that we're not immune from this. We can't simply point the finger outside the church. We have to admit that they have roots in our own heart. And so, as I see that in us, it's striking to me to read what Paul writes to Philippians. How he prays for them. That this is a letter that just exudes joy, thanksgiving, gladness. And we want to take that up theoretically and say, ah, theoretically, yes, I love the church. But he's writing to an actual church with real people that had real problems in it. He addresses some of them in this very letter. There's people who don't get along. There's people who need doctrinal instruction. There's people, clearly, who are, are not humbly serving one another. They're proud, and they're taking the first place. And yet Paul writes with great thanksgiving. With great thanksgiving. And so I see how much I need this passage, and I believe we all need it, to address our own hearts. And so I want us to see two things. First, joy in the saints, confidence in Christ. Those are the two points today. Joy in the saints and confidence in Christ. The joy in the saints. Notice, we started in verse 1 to see who Paul addresses his letter to. And the proper addressees of this letter are not simply individual Christians. It's the church. It's the church together, this local church in Philippi, one particular body of believers. 
he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. This is the only letter in the New Testament where he explicitly includes the elders, that's the overseers, and the deacons in the, the beginning of the letter where he addresses it, although all his, well, most of his letters are to churches. Here he specifically adds the elders and the deacons, and I think he does it for two reasons. The, the first reason, of course, is it teaches us about proper church government. We, as, as Presbyterians, this is our model. We are a church that has both elders, overseers, and deacons. The elders are those who are uh, qualified according to the biblical standards in 1 Timothy 3. There are those who have met those qualifications and been recognized by the church. The church has seen them, recognized their gifting, and elected them to serve in the office of elder. An elder is an overseer, one who is sort of an under-shepherd. Jesus, the good shepherd of the church, the elders are the under-shepherds, those who watch over the church, those who guard its doctrine, guard its purity, those who are in charge of leading the church. And we also have deacons. Deacons are those who are the lead servants in the church. Those, again, who fulfill the requirements of deacons in 1 Timothy 3, and who the church, again, has seen, we've witnessed their life together over a period of time, and seen this is a person whom the Lord has gifted to serve in this way. This is someone who the Lord has gifted to serve as this role of lead servant, to lead us as a church in serving one another. And Paul is writing to the whole church, the church that is accompanied with these two offices, elder and deacon. And it's interesting. He explicitly writes this letter to this local church. And, and including those elders and deacons lets us know that this is explicitly to the body, to the church gathered in Philippi, all the people together as the body of Christ. For me, this was such an important point in my growth as a, a believer to understand that that I had an identity as a Christian that was beyond just me and myself. That being a Christian involved more than just me and Jesus. That I have a relationship with the Father, and yet because of that, he has placed me into his church. He has made me to be a part of his people. And so it's appropriate then to gather with his people on a weekly basis for worship, for service of one another, in service of Christ. To gather together, that's what it means to be a Christian. You see, and here's one of the ways that played out for me, is that when I was younger, I remember one of the ways uh, the Bible was explained to me is that the Bible was essentially a love letter from God directly to me. Now, try going and reading 1 Kings as though that's a love letter written directly to you. That gets awfully confusing awfully quickly. <laughs> you think, does God even know what a letter is supposed to be? But, but that's just not how we're to understand it. It's not just to, to me personally as an individual for my own private life. It's to the body of Christ. That's why all these New Testament letters are to churches. And I am to recognize that I do not exist just me and God alone. I am part of his people. I'm part of the church. That he's made me part of a body that, that learns how to live together that rejoices with those who rejoice, that weeps with those who weeps, that loves and serves, humbles ourselves for others, that looks out for the interests of others before our own. It, it's the life together as a church that is what God has designed for us. And understanding that we are a part of the church helps us understand what these letters are for. 
helps us understand how to read and to understand these letters and to understand here's what the church is. It's the body of Christ's people. It's the body of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that one thing and that one thing alone is what brings us together. That's what unites us. For these first century Christians, they were able to realize that all of their other social distinctions were radically outflanked by the status Christian. Whether they were Jew or Gentile, whether they were slave or free, whatever socioeconomic divisions the world would tell them mattered, the Bible says those don't matter anymore. There's Christians. You're all one in Christ. Dodger fan, angel fan, just holy and good cub fan. We're all one in Christ. We don't judge each other for these things. He's brought us together and given us something more significant. And so here's one of Paul's main themes that we're going to explore in Philippians is unity. Unity in Christ. That it is Christ that unites us. What is to divide us? And he introduces that for us in writing a letter that is to all the church. And he says, as he starts his prayer, just overflowing with joy, joy in the saints, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Always, every prayer, every time I pray, in all my remembrance Paul has great joy when he prays for the church at Philippi. It's easy for us to maybe romanticize this a little bit and to remember that, yes, Paul and Philippi, they really got along. They were a church that loved Paul, that had supported Paul, even financially during his ministry. And Paul, of course, is in prison when he's writing this, so no doubt he has these great thoughts of what it must be like to be a part of the church, to be free, to be welcome to worship anytime. And yet, we know Paul was a realist. Paul knew that there were problems in the church. That's part of why he's writing. It was a no, by no means a perfect church. They were beset by troubles and sins just like every church is. And yet here is what is so uh, significant. Is that Paul is able to look at this imperfect, ordinary church filled with imperfect, ordinary people. And he's sincerely rejoicing, genuinely filled with joy. I want us to ponder this for a few moments. Oftentimes, I believe in reading the, the epistles, the letters of the New Testament. It, it's easy for us to give detailed and in-depth uh, attention to the doctrinal areas or even to the ethical areas where he's giving direct instructions for us on how to live. And yet what we don't know how, how to deal with is all of these sections of personal greetings. There are so many of them. Uh, and yet we tend to just kind of read past those, say, well, that was important in its original context. But it doesn't have much to say to us today. And yet we have to wonder, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I believe Paul and John often wrote as though these personal notes and greetings were, were some of the most significant parts. That the theological instruction and the doctrinal teaching they gave was in service to the people to strengthen and to edify and to encourage and to build up the people. And it was the people that they truly loved and the theology was meant to serve the people. Just listen to some of these instances. There are so many. In 3 John, John writes, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. 2 John 4, I rejoiced greatly 
to find some of your children walking in the truth. Philemon, verse 7, I derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother. The hearts of the saints were refreshed through you. Philemon 12, speaking of Onesimus, I am sending him to you, sending my very heart. First Thessalonians 2, What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus? Is it not you? You are our glory and joy. First uh, Thessalonians 2, We give thanks to God always for all of you. Uh, Colossians 4, he gets specific. Tychicus is a beloved brother. Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. Uh, Philippians 2, uh, you know Timothy's worth, how is a son with his father. Uh, Philippians 1.8, which we'll get to shortly. God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Over and over, and I've got more here, but I'm going to quit with my list, because over and over Paul is writing his love for the people. His love for these partners in the ministry and these people in the churches who have come to Christ, how much he loves them, his joy. One of my favorites is right here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, where he writes to them, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm. He calls them my crown and my joy. There's actually a, a new, recently planted PCA church in Virginia called Crown and Joy Presbyterian Church. And, and I really like that name for a church, not only because it's biblical, and it comes from the Bible and it expresses a biblical idea, but it expresses this hope and this glory, this thought that there is no greater joy to be had on this earth than for the saints to be gathered together around the throne of Christ, uniting our hearts together in worship. Now, there is something special in that. There is something unique in that that is not experienced in any other activity in this earth. That that is what truly we are aiming for. And I like it also because it's so countercultural in this world, isn't it? To look at any particular church, any particular body of believers, which is always far from perfect, filled with issues, filled with ordinary people, and to say, in looking at that church, because of the work of Christ here, this people is my crown and joy. I love that idea. And it's so, I, I want to say it's biblical. It's right here in the Bible. Of course it's biblical. Here's what Paul sees is such joy when he looks at any church, imperfect churches, human churches. He looks with great joy. And so here's the question. What do you see when you look at the church? What do you see? This verse is such a challenge to me. I think it's a challenge to all of us. First, among other things, it's a challenge to pray. Paul is saying here that he prays for the church, and the idea is that he prays quite regularly. I thank my God in all my remembrance, always in every prayer of mine for you. Paul is immersed in prayer for the church. Are we? Verses 9, 10, and 11, he goes into more detail, and we'll get those as to what he's praying for the church. Verse 19 in chapter 1 gives us Paul's confidence in the church's prayer for him. I love where he says in verse 19, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. I'm challenged by these verses to be praying more regularly with greater joy for the church. It's a challenge for us also to ask, what do we see when we look at the church of Christ? Are we looking with the eyes of the flesh or are we looking with the eyes of faith? Do we look only according to human standards? 
Or do we look at the church and see a group of sinners redeemed by Jesus Christ, saved and pursued by him, loved by the Father, gifted with the Holy Spirit, who is actively at work in their hearts, renewing them in the image of Christ. Not finished yet, but at work. It's as though Paul can barely contain himself, even when he gets to verse 8. God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Indeed, I, I have to admit, we're often guilty of seeing with the eyes of the flesh only. Seeing with the eyes of the flesh only. How is it that Paul has this kind of joy? I think there's two ways. First is in verse 5. Why do I rejoice? Verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That word partnership is a word most of us know. It's the word koinonia. Fellowship. Sharing. Partnership. And it, it says first that I rejoice because we have fellowship in the Lord. I rejoice because each one of us has been united to Christ and therefore we're united to each other. Because they're believers in Christ, that, that alone is reason for him to rejoice when he thinks of them, regardless of any other standing they may have, of any other status that might differentiate them. But it's more than fellowship. The word also denotes partnership. That they share the faith and they share in the same mission with the faith. That they are partners in the gospel. He will list several ways throughout Philippians that their partners, through their prayers, through their financial engagement, through being engaged in the same conflict with Paul. That's chapter 1, verse 30. Through rejoicing together with Paul, through laboring side by side with Paul. In all of these ways, he says, we're partners in this great work. We're partners. He sees them, although he, of course, is the great apostle who's going around planting churches and witnessing for Christ and preaching boldly. And there the church that stays in one location. Nevertheless, he looks and he says, we are partners in this great work. When you rejoice with me, we're partners. When you give generously to me, we're partners. When you pray for me, we're partners. And he, he thinks on that and he rejoices for them with great joy. Paul sees them as workers with whom he works side by side for the cause of Christ. And here's what I believe is important is because Paul has joy in the saints, not simply because it's his personality as an excessively happy, bubbly kind of outgoing person. I don't think that was true about Paul. And, I don't, and even if it was, I don't think that would be why he rejoices for them in prayer like he does. I believe it's because joy is an evidence of a renewed mind. Joy in the saints is evidence of a renewed mind. Remember, Paul lists joy as one of the fruit of the Spirit. How often do we think of joy simply as more of a personality trait? We think of something that, that just sort of naturally ebbs and flows, and, and for some of us it ebbs more, and for some of us it flows more. But no, joy is a fruit of the Spirit and one of the evidences of a renewed mind. You see, everyone has joy in something. And what we find our joy in and what causes us to lose our joy the quickest is often very telling about the state of our heart. It's often very telling about the state of our heart and about how and where Christ is at work in us and possibly how and where Christ needs to continue his work in us, bringing us more into his image. But Paul has great joy in the saints, not because of personality, but because of the spirit at work in Paul's heart. 
Now he has joy in the saints, but he goes on to express in verse 6 that he has confidence in the Lord. Joy in the saints, confidence in the Lord. Verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Often a well-known verse to many of us, particularly when we talk about the sovereignty of God, the perseverance of the saints, and we make this very important point that our salvation does not rest on us, but on the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of that shepherd who goes out to pursue us and bring us back when we wander so that our salvation will be brought to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Notice how he says in verse 5, your partnership from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that we'll get to the end. They've been partners from the first day until now, and his confidence in the Lord is that they will get to the end because of the work of the Lord. And here's his confidence, that Christ is at work in them. That Christ is at work in them. See, Paul says he's thankful for them. He prays with joy because of their fellowship and their partnership in the gospel. Why is he so thankful? It's because that in itself is evidence that Christ is at work. And he has confidence that Christ will continue to be at work. That's what he says. He's confident that their partnership is the work of Christ in them. I believe that's why he's so thankful. That's why he has this spirit-led joy in his heart is because he is looking around at the believers in Christ and saying, when I look at you, I see the work of Christ. I see that Jesus, our Savior, is faithful and he's currently at work in your heart. And that's reason to give thanks and to pray with joy. Another point that this is worth thinking on, this is worth pausing here and saying, listen, he's looking at other believers in the church, and he says, when I look at you, I see evidence of the work of Christ. Oftentimes, don't we even miss that on ourselves? Don't we even miss that when we reflect on our own lives, that Christ is at work in our hearts? That for those who are believers, we have through the power of the Spirit, Christ at work in us. I believe it is easy for us to tend towards discouragement, sometimes towards ingratitude, because we think so much of ourselves and and so little of Christ in us. So much of ourselves and so little of Christ. How is it that we get discouraged when Christ is at work in your heart? And we look around at others and we say, Christ is at work in you as well. That Christ has begun something here that he is going to be faithful to bring to completion on that great day. And we might only have glimpses of it here and now. But by faith, we behold and perceive what Christ is up to. And we can long for that great day when he will bring all things to completion. And the new creation will be finished. Christ will be all in all. Sin will be gone, discontentment will be no more, and we will have full joy in Christ. He says, look around. What do you see in the body of Christ? Who do you see? Normal people, right? He says, no. I see people whom Christ is at work in. Here, I believe, is where we have the opportunity to apply Paul's line from 2 Corinthians when he says, we regard no one according to the flesh. See, to regard people according to the flesh is to to regard them without respect to what Christ is doing in them. Without respect for that, but simply according to who they are uh, naturally. 
And how easily do we fall into that temptation? Even in the church, we fall into this temptation of regarding those around us according to the flesh. And so, so rather than giving thanks with this humble sense of joyful wonder for what Christ is at work in doing, what do we do instead? We, we grumble. We complain. We look down our nose and, and scoff, even if only in our own mind. We think we don't, we don't need this particular community. There's no good for me here. Whereas Paul by faith can say, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. You are my crown and my joy. What a challenge. What a challenge oftentimes for us to look at those in our families and to see them by faith, to see the work that Christ is up to in their hearts, to see our spouses in this way, and rather than grumbling and complaining, to give thanks for them regularly to be humbled by this idea of Jesus in them. To look at our children in this way. To see the work of Christ, to encourage it, to pray for it. This is, I think of what C.S. Lewis wrote, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. He says, remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and corruption since as, such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. He's, he's encouraging us to have eternal perspective and to remember that every person who we meet will one day either be glorified in Christ or sentenced to eternal corruption. And to see with those eyes is to look on the body of Christ with great joy and thanksgiving and say, look at the work of Christ, what my Savior is doing calling people out of sin and darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of his light. And in doing so, we're, we're not putting undue joy in humans. We're rejoicing in Christ. We're rejoicing in the work of Christ and it leads us to greater expectation, to greater prayers. Lord, continue your work. Continue your work in us. Continue your work in rescuing more people, being at work in those who don't yet know Christ to bring them into this body. There are no such things as ordinary people in the church. There are only people for whom we should be giving thanks with great joy, truly humbled by the opportunity to be called to be a part of God's people, not just in heaven, but, but part of his people here on earth. His ordinary, imperfect people yet gathered for worship, gathered for fellowship and witness and joy. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that we will not be those who James writes about that read your word and turn away from it and forget immediately what it says. But Father, would you, by the power of your Spirit, keep your word in our hearts and in our minds. May we reflect and meditate on it. And Lord, would you use it as your instrument and your tool whereby you renew us in the image of Christ whereas you bring us to completion on that great day, whereas by the power of your word and spirit you work in us and in your body for the glory of your Son and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.